Welcome to the Hogan Lovell's Litigation Landscape podcast series. These episodes will focus on the legal issues affecting businesses during COVID-19 disruption and beyond. Our team of global lawyers will help you navigate through these challenging times by providing expert insights and practical suggestions, giving you the tools you need to mitigate your risk and ensure stability. Hello and welcome to our Hogan Lovells podcast. Today we are going to look at the supply chain disruption that is affecting businesses across the world due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the potential disputes that we are seeing arising from this disruption. I'm Antonia Croak. I'm a litigation partner based in Hong Kong and I specialise in commercial disputes, including supply chain issues and financial services disputes. Today, I'm joined by my fellow partners, Kelly Hardy in Baltimore and Angus Rankin from London. Hi, Antonia. I'm a, an M&A and corporate partner working out of the Baltimore and Washington offices of Hogan Levels. I also head our global consumer industry sector group, and I work with manufacturers and brands in global procurement and sales, both of which have obviously been severely disrupted by the COVID pandemic. And I'm Angus Rankin, a partner in the London office, and I specialise in construction and engineering disputes. So I've been seeing quite a lot of COVID-19 as well since March. So coming to you live from Asia, the US and the UK, Kelly, Angus and I are here today to provide you with the complete global approach. As we all know, COVID-19 has caused widespread disruption. And for many businesses, the biggest impact has been to their supply chain. For months now, many businesses that we work with every day are trying really hard to keep their supply chains moving to ensure that they can continue to serve their customers. Today, we're going to talk about the trends and issues we're seeing across the global markets. We'll also take a moment to look forward and discuss whether there are any steps businesses should be taking now to prepare themselves for the future. The first theme that we'd like to cover are consumer issues. In the Asia-Pacific region, particularly in China, we were the ones first hit with the pandemic as COVID-19 started spreading around the Chinese New Year holiday week in mainland China and then across to Hong Kong. I saw a really sensible move right at the outset in Hong Kong whereby everyone was wearing masks and people began to minimise their trips around the office or restricted leaving the house. From their experience during the SARS epidemic, Hong Kongers were well prepared to take the steps that were necessary to stop the virus from spreading. However, right at the end of January, it became almost impossible to buy a mask, hand sanitizer, and any sterilising or cleaning products. What we saw was the inability of the supply chain to meet consumer demand, particularly during periods of hoarding. As part of that, we saw various reactions. Suppliers tried desperately to find other manufacturers and ended up in bad deals that became very difficult to unwind that we had to help them with. And across the Asia-Pacific region, shops themselves had to address these issues by capping purchase numbers for certain products. You could only buy one bottle of hand sterilizer, two face masks, 
Even toilet paper became restricted. Kelly, you're a couple of months behind us, but have you had the same problems that we've faced in Asia? Well, I would say first, Antonia, that our response has not been as sensible as the response was in Asia. And as a result, we are at a very different point on the curve. We certainly have seen some of the same shortages of goods like PPE, toilet paper, hand sanitizer. Flour was almost unavailable in April and May. That's improved Although a walk down the cleaning goods aisle at the grocery store tells you that we are still not in a normal supply chain situation. We still can't get PPE, and we're quickly developing a shortage of coins, interestingly. And in just four months, we've seen some really profound changes in the supply chain. The first is in the number of product offerings in stores. The Wall Street Journal reported a few months ago that the number of SKUs at grocery stores was down 7%, with numbers down as much as 30% in certain categories. Food makers in particular have reduced their product offerings and are focusing on a smaller suite of faster-selling, higher-margin products. U.S. consumers are accustomed to having a great variety of choices. And that has has driven up supply chain costs. So COVID-related shifts could really have, I think, some benefits, although it's hard to see the benefits during the current crisis, for retailers and manufacturers in the form of higher margins, lower transportation and SG&A costs, economies of scale, and even less clutter in stores. And I think we'll continue to see that even after the supply chain issues have resolved. Secondly, U.S. consumers have not flocked back to physical stores. Although shutdown orders have been rolled back in many states, state and local laws are still restricting the extent of operations. And so, for example, in my state, retail operations are open, but can only be at 50% capacity. That means people waiting outside stores to go in and very little store traffic. Here, curbside and online ordering have become very popular. So retailers and suppliers have had to adapt to that new normal. We've also seen uh, huge shifts in demand in what people are buying and how they're buying it. There was a recent Bloomberg poll that found that about 50% of Americans say that they don't feel safe going back to a mall. Online retailers, on the other hand, are doing record sales. So there's been a, a shift in how we're buying, but there's also been a shift in priorities away from luxury goods towards frugality, health products, and shopping local. I'm interested, Angus, in how things are in the UK and particularly the shift to online and whether it's closer to the US model. I think like you, I I can barely remember the last time I actually walked into a, a physical store um, and I'm certainly doing my own bit for the um, great results that I'm sure Amazon and others are enjoying. With respect to um, the clients I'm working with, I mainly operate on large construction projects. Those are fundamentally business-to-business transactions, but all the same, it's, it's very interesting to see the huge impact that 
any supply chain problems affecting the humble face mask, the humble bottle of hand sanitizer, if these construction projects around the world are not able to procure adequate supplies, which let's face it, they may run into many hundreds or thousands of face masks that they are getting through even per day, as workers might change their masks several times a day. It's been very interesting to see that such essentially relatively low-value commodity items are absolutely essential in keeping a multi-billion dollar infrastructure project working. So certainly we saw a, a very rocky period, I think, earlier in the crisis where construction sites looked like they were going to run out of hand sanitizer and face masks and were in the terrible position of effectively having to stop their work simply because they couldn't obtain those sorts of items. We see supplies improving. I'm not hearing clients talking about having to shut down their operations because they simply don't have the protective equipment. It will be interesting to watch really how the market responds as we prepare for a second or third wave, how parties in the construction industry will share the cost of those items. Will they maintain strategic reserves? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Thanks, Angus and Kelly. That's really interesting. The other topic I really wanted to hear your thoughts on were supplier issues. Hong Kong in particular, since sort of March, April, has had very strict quarantine restrictions. You can only enter Hong Kong if you're a Hong Kong resident. And even then, if you're from a certain country like the US, you have to do a 14-day quarantine in a hotel. And there has been much recent debate about whether crew members on cargo ships or cargo planes should also have to undertake that form of quarantine. And if they did, it would then become very difficult for supplier companies to ship and transport products into Hong Kong or into Asia. And then there could be a huge reluctance for them to do so, which could really impact the supply chain further. The other theme we've seen uh, really from the start of this is manufacturers and suppliers having to engage in forbearance in the same way in which the banks have had to with their borrowers, really to ensure that the commercial relationship with their key purchases is maintained throughout this period. In particular, we've dealt with issues where the top supplier or manufacturer has had to take a very generous approach with their purchasing suppliers who may be subject to minimum ordering quotas in their supply agreements, but just cannot meet these quotas in the current environments. They can't hold the excess stock on their inventory because they can't sell it to their end consumers. And it's very difficult for them to sell these goods in the same level that they would normally and at the levels that they predicted when they entered into these supply contracts. So that starts to bring in force majeure and frustration issues. But ultimately, we're seeing people try and agree some type of commercial outcome. Kelly, is are those the types of issues that suppliers are facing in the US? Or have they taken sort of a tougher approach on some of their purchases? In March and April, there was very much a focus on the types of things you've been talking about, maintaining relationships, working through the issues, allocating the costs in a fair way, keeping an eye on the long term and the relationship going forward. 
we are the most litigious jurisdiction in the world. And so I think all of us expect that some of these issues that first appeared several months ago will eventually turn into disputes. And I think that our clients certainly are maintaining records and making sure to observe the formalities of the contract in a way that will protect them if some of these matters do go into litigation. We haven't seen the wave of litigation start yet, and that's not surprising. In 2008, it took months and months for the litigation to follow the crisis. But what we are seeing is an increased number of requests from companies for assistance in seizing goods that haven't been paid for, for example, exploring their rights to payment within the terms that are set forth in the contract. And so I really do expect that there will be a shift. Angus, I imagine that you're seeing very much the same thing in the construction industry where the stakes are very high when there are delays or an inability to perform. That's exactly right, Kelly. We're seeing similar issues there. I think in my sector, as in the situations that that you mentioned, parties haven't wanted to, if you like, rush to disputes. That's premature. I don't think parties want to jeopardize long-term commercial relationships, particularly not if they are mid-project. And there was also a certain element of public relations and wanting to be seen as a good citizen, particularly if, say, a contractor is working in a foreign country and quite aware of the ramifications if it was seen to be very adversarial with its local supply chain and or its local customer. But I certainly think that the disputes are coming down the road. Parties are tending to adopt still a kind of wait-and-see approach as they try to get their arms around what is the total delay, what is the total cost impact of these events. But it's been very hard for them to do that because although we are certainly less in lockdown generally than we were in the spring, we're still quite a long way off normal ways of working, normal logistics and supply lines, as Antonia alluded to, and the difficult to quantify, almost intangible loss of productivity, which working remotely, great as it is, entails compared to people being co-located in, in one physical place. Another thing that we're seeing is although parties are not actually activating their dispute resolution mechanisms and procedures under their contracts, we are seeing a certain impatience, if I can put it that way, with project owners who have received many force majeure notices or change in law notices from contractors where those contractors haven't been able to follow up and really particularize their claim. So that's certainly a, a big theme, which is people were being collaborative some months ago. But I think as owners continue to, to receive these claim notices, but which don't actually show the cause and effect link between COVID and, let's say, the slowdown of work, we can see attitudes on projects hardening over time. I think it'd be really interesting to cover the, the trade issues we're seeing you know, the recent sanctions on China and Hong Kong, 
the backdrop of the the trade wars and you know in particular with the US election looming and the current position what you think that that impact is going to be on Asia and the long term in particular what i've seen is you know issues in regulatory issues relating to PPE there's been a huge demand for PPE to be imported into the US China has a lot of manufacturers that make PPE. Those manufacturers have to be FDA registered and approved to be able to export masks from China and, and import them into the US in order for them to be sold to end consumers. But but given that r- the numbers are rising in the US, the real need for PPE and that upcoming election, you know, how do you see the the sanctions and the trade wars, you know, impacting supply chains even further. Well, one thing I learned in 2016 is not to make predictions about presidential elections. So <laughs> I will leave that alone. But I, I do think that PPE brings out the worst in nationalistic behavior. And so it's where we see most vividly some of these tensions that have been arising, not just between China and the U.S., but around the globe. And you and I have both been involved in the procurement and transportation of PPE, and it's really quite challenging. As you point out, the trade war between China and the U.S. has escalated, particularly with the recent sanctioning of 11 Chinese companies for human rights issues and the retaliation by the Chinese government against the U.S., I think we're seeing a new level of trade tension, but the worst behavior I think we see with respect to PPE because it's so important for countries to be able to demonstrate to their citizens that they're doing everything to protect them. And so I'm involved right now in a procurement of PPE where the retailer in the U.S., is looking to shift production to a jurisdiction that is perceived as lower risk. And that means closer to home. It means a jurisdiction where the government is less likely to seize the PPE. And as you think about that, you have to think about where is the PPE going to be manufactured? But which countries is it going to pass through along the way? Because we certainly have seen seizures within the U.S., in China, in Europe, where national governments have said that PPE cannot leave the country. It is really interesting and challenging, particularly in the U.S., where, as you say, there are restrictions on the import of personal protective equipment both by customs and border protection and by the FDA. And we have seen some very quick lawmaking by the FDA to facilitate the temporary importation of PPE and the relaxation of some of the requirements. But for anyone who's going to get into this business in the long term, they need to think about the rules, the FDA rules that will apply once these temporary measures cease to exist. And we don't know how long they'll be in effect. Could be 12 months. It could be 18 months. It could be longer. 
But there are some real challenges because of the high standards that the FDA imposes on products that are going to be imported and the logistical challenges of ensuring that the proper inspections take place overseas in order to comply with those regulations. It's really a very interesting area. Thanks, Kelly. I mean, it's It'll be fascinating to see what happens and how and how the U.S. develops that regulatory law, in particular, maybe with a new president in the White House. But Kelly Angus, what I think would be really interesting to hear is how you're looking forward, what you think clients need to build into their contracts to address these issues. And Angus, can we start with you and then move to the US? What do you think clients need to do to make sure they deal with this with this pandemic or any future waves of it? Yeah, sure. So some initial reflections from my side. Before my current role, I was an in-house lawyer with an Asian contractor. And it's funny, Antonia, that you began quite rightly by referring to the previous Asian experience with respect to SARS and the swine flu, bird flu, H5N1, and all these previous um, public health emergencies. It's notable that as Asia has gone through these various public health emergencies, the list of events in the force majeure clause seems to get longer and longer because each time people think, well, we want to put it beyond doubt that that particular virus constitutes an event of force majeure, so we will put that in there. And so, of course, the the simplest change would be to include coronavirus as a a specific event of force majeure, so that you're not left having these very semantic arguments we saw, particularly at the outset, as to whether something was a pandemic or an epidemic, and whether or not it constituted a natural catastrophe or an act of God. Because if you're operating under a common law jurisdiction governed contract, clearly the, the contract wording is absolutely key. But I think the lesson for parties is that if they have the bargaining power and if there is the commitment on both sides to do so, I think that parties should be looking for a much more substantial change to the terms under which they contract. And let me just explain to you what I mean. I think what COVID-19 has shown is that it's been a complete game changer And even compared to previous things like SARS, what that has revealed in the contracts and the projects that I'm dealing with is that the existing norms for dealing with unusual events in contracts, they're inadequate machinery to deal with an event or a, a crisis of this magnitude and also this duration. So what I think I'll start to see, at least in the construction and engineering world, is where a party has the leverage, the bargaining power to propose this, it may be proposing a different sort of risk allocation for COVID-19 or its successors, really a bespoke regime within the contract for dealing with this on the basis that it needs a more nuanced, a, a more equitable a more risk-sharing response than the somewhat old-fashioned and in this crisis inadequate change in law or force majeure reliefs that one has typically seen in a contract 
in the past. It's coming at an interesting time that just when contractors and suppliers in my world would like to beef up the protections and the relief in their contracts, that's also coming amid a global downturn where winning new projects and new work has never been more important, and particularly at a time where things like the oil and gas infrastructure market have been in downturn. So it will be interesting to see where that goes. The one quick drafting fix, which I'm trying to help clients implement, is that their contracts often contain a threshold of foreseeability, whereby if an event was foreseeable, then the affected party will not be able to claim relief for it. Now, that foreseeability criterion comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and most parties don't like it anyway. But I think they need to be particularly careful around foreseeability when we're dealing with something like coronavirus, where we now know what this thing is like. It almost certainly will come back. But knowing that it will come back, we can't hand on heart say that we're able to mitigate or avoid it in advance. If it comes back, it comes back. And we generally see ourselves on the back foot and having to take the same sorts of countermeasures we took the first time it came. How about you, Kelly? It's really interesting. I definitely agree with your perspective that relying on traditional force majeure provisions, even if you ensure that you've included pandemic or epidemic, is insufficient. We are in the middle of this crisis. I think there is a risk that a court would say, at least in the U.S., would say that this force majeure is for the unforeseeable and this was foreseeable. And so I'm a big fan of addressing the COVID risk directly. And I think that the most important thing is to engage in the kind of conversation that you've suggested. What are the risks and how are we going to allocate them? And so in the consumer area, as international as the supply chain is, I think you know, some of the things that parties ought to be thinking about are what does it mean to have a shutdown? Where does the shutdown take place? Do you have a force majeure event if you're sitting in the UK or in Hong Kong or in the US and it's not shut down, but somewhere along the line where a shipping container passes or where there is uh, a procurement of raw materials, there's a shutdown. So I think we need to think very broadly about where things are happening and whether our provisions cover those risks. The other thing I think that we have learned is that governmental action can be a very complicated thing. In the U.S., where we had not only the usual 50 versions of the law, we had local governments and municipalities enacting their own shutdown orders. And in many cases, in very summary terms, so that there was a lot of interpretation, it's very hard to rely on a governmental action provision. And so I think that's something that the parties need to think about as well. Transportation, supply shortages, all of those risks that we now have dealt with, 
we know about, we can deal with in specific terms. And as you say, allocate the risk through the purchase price and through a very conscious assumption of risk. I I think the only thing that I would add to that is I think that this is an opportunity for manufacturers, for brands to think about building more flexibility into the supply chain. And it's something that companies have talked about for years, but when you have a situation like the COVID-19 shutdowns, the importance of flexibility is really highlighted. And the ability when there is a prolonged shutdown to obtain product, to get out of exclusivity provisions, to terminate contracts can become very important. The other thing that is really important is the ability to be flexible on quantities that are ordered. Or if you're a supplier or a manufacturer, the quantities that have to be provided. And so I do think that this will make both suppliers and and retailers and distributors think very hard about the degree of flexibility that they've built into their supply chain. How about you, Antonia? I think that's everything you've said is absolutely right. We're now in our third wave in Hong Kong and it's the worst wave ever. But the economy needs to roll on and consumers need these goods. So the law and and ourselves will have to adapt as we go forward because I think we are still some way off getting a vaccine to be able to resolve this issue. Kelly Angus, it's been fantastic to talk to you both as always. It's been a real pleasure to have you on here. If any of our listeners would like to discuss any of the issues we've raised here, please do get in touch with us. You can find all of our details on the Hogan Lovells website, along with a wealth of guidance on the impact of the pandemic and in particular, how to manage your supply chain disruption. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we can help. Please speak to your Hogan Lovells contact or visit our website, hoganlovells.com.